as I read. But Ecclesiastes is an introduction. It is an Old Testament book. It's about two-thirds the way through the Old Testament. It is in the wisdom known as, or in the genre known as wisdom literature. So there's five books uh, in the Bible that are known as wisdom literature. The other four are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. Uh, and, and basically what, we, what you get in wisdom literature is you're being confronted with how to live rightly before God. God's giving instructions through uh, his, these authors to instruct people how they are to live before God. And, and oftentimes people are drawn to, especially like Psalms and Proverbs, because they have kind of these pithy sayings, and so there's maybe the, just these short sayings that people will latch onto and kind of coffee cup kind of things. And, um, and I think Psalms and Proverbs, they're just, they're more relatable, more practical. It's kind of like, uh, if you do this, then oftentimes it's going to end up in this way. And so what we get with Ecclesiastes is different, I think, than Psalms and Proverbs especially. Because Ecclesiastes is typically thought to be a difficult book. A difficult book to understand, a difficult book to interpret. Many of you maybe have never even read Ecclesiastes, or if you've tried, you maybe got into the second verse, and you're like, I'm out. Like, this is, this is too dire for me. I don't, I don't want to put up with this, and so you just didn't even complete it. If you think about Proverbs, what you oftentimes get in Proverbs are kind of the norms. If you do this thing, then you're most likely to get this result. What you get with Ecclesiastes is the opposite. When Proverbs says, this is the result you're most likely to get, uh, Ecclesiastes kind of gives the exceptions, oftentimes. W what you wouldn't expect to get. Uh, one author, his name is Zach Eswine, he describes Ecclesiastes in this way. He says, Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed. Looks like it, too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we are all going to die. So, most of us choose to get our lunch at a different shop. In short, most who have grown up in the Christian community have very little acquaintance with the neighborhoods of wisdom, and I would say especially Ecclesiastes. The wisdom books are like those neighbors at which we smile, but with whom we rarely converse, because they live on the other side of the tracks. He says, no, wonders, no wonder Ecclesiastes sounds foreign to us. So if, if you have no idea what Ecclesiastes is about, if you've never read it before, uh, you're not alone. Uh, I think there's probably many of us who, as we read through this, are going to be like, man, this just doesn't make sense. But hopefully as we walk through it, we can make some sense of it. And it, it can speak to us in some significant ways. Now, in terms of who wrote the book, traditionally, the traditional view is that this book was written by King Solomon. Um, and that was thought to be the case for uh, many, many years, many centuries. Until the last couple hundred, of, hundred years, uh, there's been skepticism regarding that. And so there's been a lot of uh, other ideas that have been put forth. But what we do know is, as we read this, the author is anonymous. We can't say for sure it is this person or it's not this person. I personally uh, think that it, it tends towards Solomon's authorship. But, but even if someone doesn't, I think as you read through the book, what you find is that the, the author is at least Solomonic in nature. 
like he, he's kind of taken on the role of Solomon. And so at the end of the day, I think that we arrive at very similar places anyways. The title Ecclesiastes, it comes from a Hebrew word known as koaleth. And so Ecclesiastes then is, is kind of a, a Latin or Greek uh, word meaning preacher or teacher. And so what we find, even in the title here, is that the preacher is preaching or teaching to an assembly. And so as we read this, we are like the listeners, the hearers, as the preacher was preaching in that day. And so the call for us is to listen. Listen closely. And we're going to be called to listen closely because of the content in this book. It is difficult to understand at times, but I also think there are ways in which we can kind of simplify how we interact with this book to try and, and come to conclusions that will be really helpful for us. So one way in which I think that we can do this is to understand that the Bible is one story. So all of these different books, they're one coherent story. And the pinnacle of this story is Jesus. So one way in which that we can try to understand Ecclesiastes is to ask questions like, how does this point to Jesus? How is this foreshadowing him? How is this pulling us forward to the point of the whole Bible? We get a little glimpse of this in Matthew 12, 42. Jesus says there, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying something greater than Solomon is here, and he's referring to himself. Solomon was a king that was known for his wisdom. He was known for the riches that he possessed. And he was known for uh, reigning over a kingdom that was largely marked by peace. Now, despite the supernatural wisdom that Solomon possessed, Solomon still didn't have all the answers. He still didn't have it all together. We get to the end of his life and he has seriously jacked some stuff up. Jesus would come and he would embody wisdom in a much greater way than Solomon ever did. Solomon possessed riches, but what we come to understand through the whole of the storyline in the Bible is that it was all given in and through Jesus himself. Solomon's reign was known as a peaceful reign, but when we look at Jesus, he was the one who was foreshadowed as the prince of peace, the one who brings ultimate peace. Now, as we push into this book, the preacher is going to push us to Jesus in one major way. He's going to expose the vanity of our existence. That, this word is going to come up today as we look at chapter 1, the idea of vanity. That vanity is all around us. John Calvin, a theologian, he says regarding Ecclesiastes, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. The preacher is going to lay heavy on us the realities that are all around us. And he wants, to feel, he wants us to feel the weight, how dire it is. And then, out of that, he wants us to know, amidst all the hopelessness that we see around us, to know that there is a greater hope. And so as we read through Ecclesiastes, we should feel some tension. On the one hand, we need to feel the hopelessness of our everyday existence. 
We need to be honest about the stuff going on around us. It is messed up. And we need to sit in that. We need to feel that. We don't just run away from that. But we don't want to just live there our whole lives either. We want to be moved to Jesus. We need to get to him, but not too quickly. We don't just want to gloss over, yeah, it's bad, but we want to feel that. Because every single one of us lives in this world. And we know that it is a world that is fractured, severely broken by sin. We need to feel that deeply. And then, as a contrast to that, to see how good Jesus really is. So let's jump in. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The preacher says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So a little introduction to the author here. I think this is evidence for Solomonic authorship in the sense that he's referring to the son of David. So David is regarded as the greatest king in Israel, and his son was Solomon, King Solomon. And then we get this connection here already, this connection to Jesus. So Solomon's being referred to here as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. If we think about Jesus, Jesus was also referred to as the son of David in Matthew 1. And then he was also viewed as a king in Jerusalem as he was making his triumphal entry back into Jerusalem. The crowds and masses were hailing him as the king, the king that they had waited for, but, but we come to know that it was the king that they would kill in a number of days. Verse 2. It says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So I think this is where people just kind of want to tap out, right? That's enough of that. I don't like where this is going at all. And we kind of move on to maybe a gospel or something. Now, this exact statement is found at the very end of Ecclesiastes as well. So it's almost this bookend statement, this summary statement, vanity of vanities. So we know that the author is trying to drive this point home. It's not as though he comes back and so says, no, it's, it, it's not all vanity. No, he ends it with the same statement. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The Hebrew word for vanity, hebel, it, it's difficult to define. It, it's it's kind of hard to get a grasp on it, which it's kind of symbolic, I think, because the word literally means vapor. Literally means smoke. So, we oftentimes will think of vanity as kind of this self-preoccupation, right? Like someone sitting in front of a mirror and, and taking care of themselves, and they're just doing that all the time. That's what we oftentimes think about vanity. But the preacher has in mind more so the idea of futility. He's saying everything is fleeting. Everything is elusive. This world is filled with vanity, with futility. But it's not just filled with, he's, he's saying it's stacked. Vanity upon van vanity. So you think about someone who hates reading, okay? They just, they never read books. Like their idea of reading is opening up a magazine and looking at pictures, okay? So my wife would joke that she's been this way for many years, uh, but now she's, she's becoming literate and she's enjoying reading now. But 
so if you think about someone who hates books, so if you would bring them a stack of like the greatest classics ever in the history of the world and said, you, you tell them, you just need to read these and you'll have an affinity for reading. They, they would look at that stack of books and they'd be like, that's vanity. Like that's vanity stacked upon vanity. And that's what the preacher is saying. This world is filled. It's vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. This world is marked by temporary pleasures that cannot endure. We're continually seeking to grab substantive things, but as we reach and grab, all we get is wind. It's air. It's sand that slips through our fingers. Our existence is marked by futility. And I think this has really been uh, pushed into our faces recently with some of the celebrity suicides that have occurred. We look at some of these people, right, and, and we see this depiction of, of wealth. We see this depiction of success, like they've made it. They've gotten where they wanted to get. They're famous. People throughout the world would look at them and say, I wish I could have that. We look at these people and say, they have it all. And yet, their existence is so futile that it drives them to death. They know that there is this craving within them for meaning, for worth, and everything that they have cannot give them what they are looking for. So the preacher says, all is vanity. He's going to move from here to illustrate how we see and experience this vanity, this futility in our everyday existence. And he's really going to push home this idea of repetition. So let's read this. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So in verse 2, the preacher introduces us to this repeated theme of vanity, but now he's introducing us to another repeated theme that's going to come up throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And that theme is the phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. This phrase refers to our existence, to our lives here on earth. Everything that happens in this world happens under the sun. The preacher 
has looked at life. He's looked at everything that he has seen. And he says, he's, he's about to say in the next couple of verses that he has seen everything. So he has seen a lot. He's looked at all of it, at life, and he makes this grim conclusion. He explains with using natural realities, the sun, the wind, and streams. The sun rises, and then that same sun sets, and then it goes back to where it rises, and it does this thing over and over and over. And he's, the preacher is driving home this reality that life is a bunch of repeated acts, and, and in this he's implying that they're ineffective. The fact that they need to keep happening over and over and over implies this reality they're not accomplishing everything. Maybe something, but they're not ultimately sufficient. I mean, you think about our existence, right? We mow the lawn. What do we have to do the next week? We have to mow the lawn. We cut our hair. I've been wanting to get my hair cut for a while. Still hasn't happened. But when I, cut my, when I get my hair cut, I'm going to have to get it cut, hopefully in another three weeks. My, my wife says three months is more preferable, but, but I like three weeks. But, but the reality is it's going to need to happen again in not too long. Every night we go to sleep. We wake up, we get tired. We have to go to sleep again. The seasons that we go through, summer, fall, winter, and spring, they're coming over and over and over. In our house, uh, we, we enjoy following the Vikings, the, the football team here. And um, one thing that my boys and I have done the last couple of years is we've watched the NFL draft. And so leading up to the draft, we'll maybe read a couple articles and watch a couple videos just to kind of get a sense of who these guys are and, and what's going on. But what I realize we were watching the draft this, this past year. As, as I watched the draft, and I'm listening to these so-called experts talk about these players, I realize they're saying the same things that they said the year before. They're using these same phrases to describe these guys. Like nothing's really changed except the size and the names of the players. But everything else is the same, Right? And we got to the end of, of watching that, and we were watching it with a friend this, this past year, and, and the friend is like, does this make you like the NFL more or dislike it more? And, and we're like, yeah, it's, it's just kind of like, I really don't enjoy doing this. It's just like spewing nonsense over and over and over. If you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you feel this in a really distinct way. You get up, you change diapers, you sing the same songs, you read the same books, you answer the same questions over and over. You clean the same spots day after day, and it can cause us to wonder, right? Like, why? What's the point of all this? Are we actually getting ahead in any way at all? There's a repetition and a monotony to our daily existence that is undeniable. Now some of us, when we think about this repetition, this is comforting for us. 
Like, so for some of us, maybe it feels like there's a sense of control that we have, right? We know this is what the day is going to look like. We know we have to clean these certain things. We know these are the questions that are going to be asked. These are the things that are going to come day in and day out, when I'm going to work out, when I need to be at work. And so for some of us, maybe this is comforting. For others of us, this whole repetition and monotony is boredom for us. And especially for those types of personalities. I don't think it's surprising that we've seen this cultural value of experience pop up, right? Like, we need to experience other things, and that will enrich our existence. In some sense, it will satisfy or, or maybe even begin to save us, redeem our existence. If we can experience these various things, if we can travel the world, if our kids can play in all these different sports, if we can go through all these different educational opportunities and learn these things, then maybe we will be satisfied. And we'll even think about things like, if we can just make things new. I've never done this thing before. Maybe if I experience this new thing. But the preacher even pushes on that in verse 9. He says, there is nothing new. There is nothing new at all. And I think one of the ways that I typically think about newness is technology. Right? And, and so I think about my iPhone. Many of you, maybe many of you, whenever a new iPhone comes out, right, like there's this big push. I, I want the, the new thing. I'm more like a few generations behind because it's, it's more economical and, and I'm just kind of cheap that way. And so I'm happy being a few generations behind. But, but culturally, when a new phone comes out, there's, there's this swell of excitement, right? Like I want to get that. I want to experience the, the things that this piece of technology will offer to me. But I think about my iPhone, and the reality is, what it allows me to do are the same things that the preacher's talking about. I mean, the reality is we, we've all communicated, and communication has happened for thousands of years, right? The phone is just allowing me to communicate in a different way. Or a calendar. I utilize a calendar a ton on my phone. But we've been able to organize our lives in other ways for thousands of years. Entertainment. We're entertained by our phones, right? But we have found tons of other ways to be entertained throughout the years. So the preacher says, looking at all of this repetition, all of the monotony within which we live, he says in verses 8 and 9, all things are full of weariness. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The world we live in is filled with repetition. And this reality drives home an important truth. Nothing under the sun, nothing in this world within which we live can ultimately satisfy us. We will get sick of whatever that thing is if we drink too much, if we eat too much, if we work out too much. There is nothing under the sun that can ultimately satisfy 
us, not a spouse. A spouse will not ultimately satisfy us. And if we put a spouse in that spot, there is so much pressure. They will ultimately fail us in significant ways. There's no spouse that can give us what we really long for. Children. Children will not give us what we yearn for. A job. If only I could have this job. There's no job that will give us what we long for. There's no income level that we can reach. There's no fitness level. Like There's no body type that we can get that is ultimately going to satisfy us. There's no friend that we can have. There's no amount of fame that we can reach. There's no experiences that we can go through that are ultimately going to satisfy us. Everything under the sun is limited. There is inherent limitation all around us. I was thinking about this um, growing up, played a lot of basketball, and one of the greatest basketball players of all time, his name is Kobe Bryant, so he played in this generation. Maybe some of you have heard of him or, or watched him. I remember listening to Kobe Bryant at the end of his career. He was trying to delay retirement because he did not know what to do when he retired. He had poured his life into basketball. It was everything to him. It was God. And now, as he was getting older and his body was becoming more creaky and he didn't have the same athleticism, he was beginning to see the writing on the wall. Basketball was not going to be able to give to him what he yearned for. He saw and felt the limitations. And when we think about this reality, when we think about our own lives, this can feel really grim, really bleak, because everything around us tells us otherwise, right? You can be something. You can go somewhere. You can do this thing. We hear these messages all the time. But the preacher is telling us something very different. There's a reason that Ecclesiastes has this reputation as a pessimistic book. The preacher is telling his hearers, including us, Life is like running on a treadmill, continually doing the same thing, trying to go somewhere, but ultimately going nowhere. Life under the sun is futile. We, as a people, need to feel this. We need to feel the weight of this. We don't just try and escape this and, and go to something happy. We need to feel the breathlessness of being punched in the gut by this truth. We need to let our dreams die. That's what the preacher is telling us. He's going to go on here. He's going to talk about wisdom. So let's read here in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, 
I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I just want to point out a few things here from these verses. First of all, in verse 14, the preacher writes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. I, I, want, I want all of us to see this connection between this two, these two ideas. Everything under the sun, all is vanity. The preacher wants us to see that these are intricately connected. Secondly, in verse 13, he writes, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So we've got this bleak picture of existence that the preacher has given to us. And here he calls life an unhappy business. But I think it's good for us to stop here. Understanding what he's saying. Because it, it, it almost feels like let's throw our hands up in the air, right? Like, let's just be done with this. But we need to understand what the preacher's view of God is here. Who is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? God is over everything. The preacher is even saying God has given this unhappy business. He is sovereign over all of this. And I think this is one of, the, one of those things that maybe it's, it's hard to understand. He, he paints this really bleak picture of reality in Ecclesiastes. And these are the things that I think make Ecclesiastes either want to stiff arm them or, like, I just don't get it. But I think also in this that the preacher is making things really accessible. Because he's asking questions. He's making observations that I'm guessing every single one of us has thought, has made at some point in our lives. But why is there so much evil in this world? Why do, why do all these good things happen to evil people? We all have these questions. The reality is, what, what the preacher is describing is how things are. And they are bad. They're very bad. Now, some hear this and they think, lack of faith. The preacher just has a lack of faith. While others hear this and they think, oh, a refreshing drink of water. He's asking the questions that I have. He's making observations that I have made. And we need to understand he still has this view of God as sovereign over all of this. So I think in this, there's almost this instruction, this is how we wrestle, right? We ask the questions. We push into the hard things. We don't try and hide them away. We put the mess on the table. God's not going to run from it. He's not too small for it. He can handle it. So you think about the questions that you have, the doubts that you might have. The way to maturity is immaturity. The way we become mature is to lay our immaturity out there so it can be dealt with, it can be worked on. The way to healing is oftentimes painful. The way to knowing 
is admitting you don't know, that you have questions. The way to life is through death. The way to joy is maybe not the way that we would always choose to get there. But ultimately, that's God's desire for us, that we would be satisfied. And he knows that our satisfaction is found ultimately in him. Third, verse 16. The preacher writes, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. When reading this, I think this also points to the authorship that, that this is Solomon who's writing this. In 1 Kings 4, um, God, it says that God gave Solomon wisdom beyond measure. You could not measure the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. It says there that he has more wisdom than any other man. So as we're reading this, I think it's good for us to to understand the one who's writing this, the one who's speaking this, is wiser, much wiser than me, much wiser than you. The man writing this book has had wisdom and experiences beyond anything we can even imagine. And one thing that I love here, he's talking about vanity, right? So that, that's how he starts off, talking about vanity. But then he comes around here and he's talking about wisdom here at the end of this chapter. He, he's focusing on a really good thing, right? Like any of us would look at wisdom and say, I want that. That's a good thing. James says, if you lack it, ask for wisdom. So we look at that and say, that's a really good thing. And what we find this wise man saying is in much wisdom is much vexation. Even the really good things in life cannot ultimately satisfy us. They can't save us. Even large volumes of those good things cannot satisfy us. And and we know with Solomon, he had all of this, even if we have large volumes, we look at Solomon's life. He had all this wisdom, and and he couldn't handle that. He jacked things up. He made horrific decisions in his life. So we can chase. We can consume. We can accumulate. But at the end of the day, if the things that we're chasing and we're consuming and we're accumulating are under the sun, they will profit us nothing. They will not gain us anything. So we hear this. This is heavy, right? It's not like we want to skip out of here right now. But there is really good news here. There is tons of reasons for hope here. So I want to end with a couple points of gospel application that I hope help us to see the hope that's inherent in these verses. So there is a weight here that we must feel that, that should lead us to at least the brink of despair. But as we are there, we should also know 
that the fact that we feel that implies that there must be something more. That can't be all there is. There must be a reason to have hope. So, first point of gospel application here. I've stated this already, but I want to drive it home again. There's nothing under the sun that will satisfy us, that will ultimately provide us what we are looking for. And the reality is, maybe some of you are walking through a stage of life right now where you're like, man, I'm, I'm kind of digging life outside of Jesus. I'm kind of doing this other thing, and, and I'm pretty much satisfied. The reality is, we will go through seasons. Maybe some of those seasons are long, where we will experience satisfaction. But we'll have to keep coming back to that thing over and over. And the fact that we have to repeat that act over and over should imply to us it's not ultimately giving us what we are really looking for. So when I say that there is nothing under the sun that will provide us satisfaction, I'm not saying that as a downer. My hope in telling you this is that I want you to find freedom. Because this is where freedom is found. Freedom from the tireless pursuit of seeking fulfillment where it cannot be found. Of chasing after things that ultimately will disappoint us. I love this phrase, all things are full of weariness. We should all be able to relate to this at some point during our days. We feel weary, right? We chase after things. We feel weary. We don't have any more strength to go on. Do you find yourself there this morning? Do you feel weary? Do you feel frustrated? Do you find yourself despairing? Because if you do, you should not be surprised. The intention is, as we walk through this life, and we see all these patterns around us, all this repetition that's happening over and over, this should be a reminder to us, there is nothing here that my eyes can see, that my ears can hear, that will satisfy me. I have to look elsewhere. This is our existence. It is an existence that is marked by sin. It is broken. We are devastated. It is cruel. It causes us to cry tears. It is a brutal existence. And so we should sit in that. Sit in that reality. And then think, this sounds a lot like the road that Jesus had to walk on our behalf. We should feel the discomfort of this spot, the not-rightness. Something's not right here. We should feel that yearning for something better, something new, something new. Though we just read from the preacher that there is nothing new under the sun. And he is right about that. But, Notice he says there is nothing new under the sun. But there is a new thing foretold by Isaiah. God says, I am doing a new thing. Jesus came down under the sun, but he came from above the sun. He came from the heavens. John 6, 38 says, Jesus says, Therefore I 
have come down from heaven. The one who will come and change and redeem this existence that is so dire came from above the sun. He comes under the sun and then he says, as he goes along in John chapter 6, he, he's talking about not doing his own will, but the will of his Father. And he says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. We think about our existence here. It's very temporal, right? Life comes and goes really quickly. But even what the preacher is talking about, he's talking about temporary things. It happens. The sun comes up. It goes down. It's very temporary. Next day it comes again. Very temporary. What Jesus is talking about here is something of permanence, something eternal. And he's saying belief in him is where we find permanence, where things are no longer temporary. So Jesus enters into every part of our under-the-sun existence. He knows what we feel. He's walked the roads that we will walk. And Jesus says, you read in Revelation 25, speaks about him, says, Behold, I am making all things new. So what the preacher could not do in making things new, Jesus has come to make absolutely everything new. Jesus where death exists, he brings life. He brings meaning to meaninglessness. He brings hope to hopelessness. He brings forgiveness where there is sin. He brings salvation. And if you think about Jesus, in Hebrews it talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. We see this idea of repetition throughout the Old Testament. We think about the priests and the sacrifices that they need to make make day after day after week after month after year they made these sacrifices and in this they're communicating those sacrifices are not sufficient but what did jesus come and do he made a once for all sacrifice that is sufficient he is making all things new and in john 16 verse 33 this is just prior to jesus arrest and his crucifixion he's speaking to his close friends he says there I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And I love what he says next. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Look around us. This world is filled with trouble. And Jesus says, that's the way it's going to be. But I have come so that in the midst of all this trouble, you might have peace. I want to make you new. And so we look at this world around us. We see all this repetition. How do we interact with that repetition that we see day in and day out? Should we just throw our hands up and not go to work? Not work out? Not clean? Not do these things? Not at all. Jesus is saying here, in this world, you will have trouble. I have come, I have said these things so that in the midst of trouble, you would have peace and you can extend peace. And when you begin to doubt, 
when all of this trouble around you is this storm that's swirling and it feels like it's going to overtake you, remember this. Take heart. I have overcome the world. There is no one like Jesus. There's no power in this world that can compare to him. There is no trouble in this world that is as big as him. We go to Jesus. As we read this, we read all of the angst that the preacher is telling us about, all this repetition that seems to be so meaningless. In that, we see the need for Jesus. How we then can bring peace and joy to a world that is in such need of it. So we don't bemoan this repetition. We still go to work, and we work hard, and as we work, we bring the peace of Christ to those who need it. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for these reminders. Thank you, God, for sending your Son into this under-the-sun existence, attacking this reality that is so brutal, taking that brutality upon himself so that as we live in this world, we can have tons of hope. We can be filled with joy, not, not just a dash of joy, but be full of joy, Jesus says he desires for us. And so I pray, as we sing songs of response, as we reflect on this reality, that we would see you for who you are, that our faith in you, our affection for you would be stirred. We would be drawn to you in greater ways so that as we walk from here this morning, we would have this undying hope that no trouble can extinguish. And as we walk through our days full of repetition, we would not bemoan that. We would not become angry about it, but we would see the reminders in our faces of our need for you. In the midst of hopelessness, there is tons of hope. And so, God, I pray that you would pervade our hearts with these truths. May your Holy Spirit powerfully work in these moments and through the days that follow, that we would know you and encounter you in powerful and provocative ways. Would you start that even now? In your great name I pray. Amen.